This episode of Consumer VC is brought to you by Ferret. Okay, so let's say you're going to invest in a business or you're considering investment from someone else. How do you actually know if they're legit? Sometimes deals move so fast that it's tough to get that confidence fast. Luckily, there's Ferret, the first relationship intelligence tool for savvy investors and CEOs who need to know who they can trust. Running a quick search on Ferret can give you information like past lawsuits, bankruptcy, fraud allegations, new coverage, and also can be used to verify past successes that they claim. A new relationship is always exciting, but that also means trust is important from the start. To get in front of the line and join Ferret's exclusive early beta where you can be part of the first thousand that have an early look and help influence the product, head over to ferret.ai and use the promo code CONSUMERVC. This episode is also presented by Gorgeous, the number one help desk for Shopify, Magento, and big commerce stores, and can turn your customer support into a private center. We're going to hear from Alex from Princess Polly to learn more. I am Alexandria Collis, Director of Customer Experience for Princess Polly. Our demographic is Gen Z, and this is the I expect a response now. I call them the now customer. Our CX teams engage across every single channel. It is very important that we meet our customers where they are, and Gorgeous allows us the opportunity to be efficient with all of these channels located in one place. If you're interested in learning more about Gorgeous, go to gorgeous.com and mention podcast for two months free. Stay tuned after the episode where I chat with Rowan from the Gorgeous team, where he shares three tips to help manage your customer support center during the holidays. Link in show notes to sign up for Gorgeous and to get two months free. Hello, and welcome to the Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Thank you, Ben Jang, for the intro to our guest today, John Sebastiani, founder of Sonoma Brands and Crave Jerky. Sonoma Brands is a private equity firm focused on the growth sectors of the consumer economy. Crave was one of the first better for you jerky brands on the market. John is the first founder we've had on the show that has not only scaled and sold his company to a strategic, but also reacquired the company with Crave. This was such a blast chatting with John about being a fourth generation winemaker, all things Crave, as well as his investment philosophy. It's also one of our longest episodes. Without further ado, here's John. John, thank you so much for joining me here today. How are you doing? Doing well. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. So you're a fourth generation winemaker. Why did you decide to become an entrepreneur and why jerky of all things? Yeah, I tell you what, you know, sometimes life has its own plan for us. And uh, I wish I could tell you that like uh, me landing into Crave uh, was a master plan that I designed uh, when I was growing up. But, but that's the furthest from the truth. I was uh, raised in this wine family that is totally an epic environment to grow up in, in Sonoma Valley. My family's from uh, Tuscany and Italy. 
and they're very blue collar. So even though the wine industry has a lot of romance and glamour in it, uh, the way I was raised was like, you got to get your ass in the vineyard and work. So I grew up kind of at age 10, starting to work in the vineyards and over the years kind of grew my way up the, the food chain, went to school and came back in. And as a young professional, almost felt like, and when I'm speaking with people that are a part of a family business, sometimes there's this dynamic that our path for us is charted for us. Like we don't even participate in its choice. It just is what it is. And that's kind of, as I, as I look back, I don't remember like deciding I want to be in the wine business. It was just expected. But I came back in after undergrad. I became uh, the president of one of our wineries, our family of wineries. By the time I was in my 20s, uh, we had multiple vineyards, multiple brands, multiple different operations. And so I became president at a pretty young age of one of them. And I, I got to be honest, I mean, this little experience for me at, is at a young age was instrumental in me becoming more of an entrepreneur because it was my first disruptive moment where we entered the wine business. We, we were going to build our route to market as a direct to consumer. Now, this is in the early 90s. So today that would sound very normal. But in the early 90s, nobody was doing that. And so that allowed me to A-B test, to design a go-to-market strategy towards the consumer. Uh, and ultimately, we built it and, it, and it, it became a success. But why I ended up entering Jerky is because my family decided quite abruptly to, to sell the winery. And so, you know, it was one of those moments. It was a very dark moment. I got to be honest with you. It was, it was a very scary place to be where there's a blessing being born into a prominent wine family. And then there's a curse. The blessing's pretty obvious. The curse is the world thinks that you had everything given to you. The world thinks that you had a silver spoon in your mouth your entire life, and it must be nice. And why do you even need to work, John? What are you even worried about? Like, you can't relate to me and my everyday problems. And so I grew up with a mentality of believing that I had to work twice as hard to get half the respect. And my own career was really important to me and really blazing my own trail and my own independent sort of success was important to me. So much so that when the winery was sold, I was like, well, what the hell am I going to do now? Now, I could go on for an hour with you, Mike, about the wine industry and kind of like the pluses and minuses of that as an industry, as an investor or as an entrepreneur. But let's just say that that the old saying of how do you make a small fortune in the wine business and you start with a big one is true. I mean, it's a tough industry to make money. And not that making money was my only objective. I wanted to be proud of the work, the product. I wanted to deliver an unmet uh, need to the consumer. And the leap from wine to jerky was simple enough. I saw a gap in the marketplace 
that have virtually no culinary, no romance. So all the romance that I talked about in wine, there was simply no romance in jerky. And the connective tissue to me, which made sense was I was running, getting ready for the New York City Marathon. And here I was eating this product as a way to get protein in my body and a way to eat and practice a paleo lifestyle. And I'm like, holy smokes. I mean, here is a wide open category. It's a big category. I bring to the table a culinary background. I live in the heart of wine country. Some of the best restaurateurs and chefs in the world live here. My mother's a chef. My mother's a cookbook author. So I'm like, my whole idea was I want to bring romance, function, excitement to this stale jerky category. That's amazing. And I really appreciate you opening it up and, and really saying about how you had this chip on your shoulder. I guess once your family sold the business, kind of the rug was pulled out and you were like, okay, what do I do next? And also what I also really enjoyed learning is the relationship between wine to jerky. As you say, bringing that romance and and love to jerky when I mean, at the time, I mean, still still there is, apart from Crave and a few others, but it wasn't obvious or, or didn't really have that when it came to jerky. So in the first steps of starting jerky, once you realized, okay, I want to start, I want to kind of go in all in and create Crave, what were the first steps? The first steps were very emotional. I think one of the most powerful positions an entrepreneur can be in, and entrepreneurs all have different reasons why they start their business. Some are quite methodical about solving a problem, but there's, I think there's like a, there's a DNA component to entrepreneurs that causes us to just develop this never ending questioning of a status quo. So for me, the first step was identifying the fact that I had to create my own path. It was a survivalist mentality. Winery sold. I have to invent a new career. I don't want to be in the wine business. I'm going for it because, as I mentioned, I identified this crazy. I mean, you can imagine the disconnect between wine and jerky. They couldn't be more polar opposites of products. Um, for me, it was it was a couple of different things. One is obviously you have to explore the customer base. You have to determine whether your hypothesis, your thesis actually holds water. This is table stakes for every entrepreneur that develops a minimum viable product that tests it in a certain number of doors. Fortunately, because of my wine industry relationships, I was able to locate a co-manufacturer fairly quickly. I designed the recipes uh, myself with, with a group of thought leaders in the culinary world. And again, my objective, Mike, was, was I wanted to be as far away from Jack Links and Slim Jim as I could possibly be. In fact, I didn't even want to be in the same sentence. When I would go to a retailer or a consumer and they'd say, jerk, yeah, man, jerk Slim Jim. And it's like, no, no, no. I wanted to be in the same sentence as Cliff Bar or Chobani. And so it was a mindset of trying to shift the perception of the actual product away from being a gut stuffer sort of, you know, truck driver type product to something that was more functional, more 
health oriented and more focused on fitness. And so that narrative required absolutely a package that would convey that, that meaning. So there were a number of, of early parts of our strategy that had to reflect or had to, in a resounding way, tell a retailer or a consumer that Crave, this bag of jerky, was totally, in every way possible, different from what you're used to when you thought about jerky. What were some of like the early, as you say, you wanted to test the hypothesis? I'd love to kind of unpack that a little bit in what are some of like the market research you did either before launch or, or maybe as a, like, like a preliminary uh, launch to see, you know, it's not just me that wants this product. There's, there's other people out there as well. And it's something as well you can sell to retailers, right? Which is, which is ultimately the, the test too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, really, really the, the hypothesis was, I believe the consumer was ready for a premium product that removed again, you know, sometimes the food business is moving so fast now that what I tell you today seems like such table stakes. But 10 years ago, it was very different. So 10 years ago, removing sodium nitrate and corn syrup as ingredients in the jerky, nobody had done that. And so today you're like, oh my God, people actually use sodium nitrates. But 11 years ago, that's what they did. And why did they do it? Because it gave them three years of shelf life, sodium nitrates. And that was a major part of managing the economics of the industry. So for me, uh, the hypothesis was, is the customer ready for a premium product? Is the customer desirable of gourmet flavors or cosmopolitan sophisticated flavors like black cherry barbecue or Cabernet Rosemary or you know sweet Chipotle? Another thesis was, could I get a non-meat snack eater to convert to a jerky from an alternative protein snack? That was a big question. Could I compete head-on against the protein bar business as a different vehicle of getting protein into the body? Now, today, again, protein has so many different vehicles, powders, shakes, bars, all kinds. Uh, but at that time, it was a pivot for the category to embrace protein wellness fitness as opposed to just snack. You know, the results were quite resounding. The answer was yes. But right alongside the original hypothesis in my research and data collection was that at the time, 90% of meat snack eaters were men. And in fact, many premium retailers in the country didn't even sell meat snacks. It wasn't, it was only sold in convenience stores. And so my objective was to create permissibility for females to consume meat snacks. And permissibility meaning they're not embarrassed if they have it on their desk. The category was in the gutter so much so that there was sort of judgment associated with the consumption of it. And so we had to change the ingredients. We put very specific colors and, and flavors on the packaging to convey that this is a more modern cosmopolitan type product. 
than what you'd otherwise assume a jerky to be. And those, you know, Mike, you know, the, again, whether you're selling jerky or any other product, the thesis, the, the business canvas that we had built began to grow geometrically, meaning one retailer turned into 10, turned into a hundred, turned into a thousand. And this is one of those, and I can appreciate that moment more so now that I'm an investor in 17 different businesses, the magic that occurs when you've got the right formula, the right positioning, the right product. Sometimes building these brands, you just need to be in the right place at the right time. And you got to be ready. You got to just have the resiliency and grit to do whatever it takes to get it done. Craig was one of those stories because within the first year, the results were resounding. It was purchase once, 90% repeat purchase rate at retail. Every retailer that I went into, we were, we were growing the category. In some cases, we doubled their category sales in our first year on shelf. Within the first three years, we had major national retailers that were expanding their meat snack space. By the time we sold Crave to Hershey, we had almost, Crave had helped to almost double the entire U.S. size of the meat snack space. And even today, the category is still growing faster than any other snack space. So I'm not going to say the Crave is the reason. I'm just saying the Crave was at the front of the line that led this renaissance. How did you think about, because of, of course in retail, shelf location is obviously critical. And how did you think about since you're kind of making this new category in that, yes, it's jerky, but you're appealing to um, non-jerky eaters, right? And you want to be more in the bars. Was it and maybe closer to the bars in a retail shop? Was that also difficult to get retailers behind that? You're absolutely right that, that retailers, by and large, want to put products into a box, right? So if you're a cookie you're in the cookie category. If you're, you know, a refrigerated cheese, you're in that category. And so they each have different buyers and they're, they feed up to different reporting metrics. So meat snacks is, is generally put into the salty snack, which is chips category. So for me to roll into a retailer and say, hey, I don't wanna be there. I wanna be over here next to the premium protein bars. It doesn't work that way. And so uh, even though that's what I tried to do and wanted to do, it took me a while to get there because what is adjacent to that reality is that retailers also study data. Obviously they do. And so as the data grew and as Crave's momentum uh, expanded and was driving more penny profit to the retailers, it gave me more leverage to at least propose that while I won't move the entirety of our merchandising next to the protein bar set, they began to allow us to build off-shelf merchandising units. So we may be in the jerky category in the center of store, but over time we would put racks and shippers and off-shelf merchandising units next to the, um, the, the protein bars. 
that's really helpful. I know you talked about maybe the bed and, and this kind of convergence that you saw with Crave in that your timing was was so perfect. Um, but what were maybe some of like the early mistakes since this was your first go around as an entrepreneur, or I believe your first go around as an entrepreneur that looking back that that were mistakes? I love this question because I try to behave and, and live in a way where we're always self-evaluating what we do. And sometimes we get things right. And many times we don't. The reality in Crave, and, I, and pl- trust me, there's if we, if we spend time talking about Sonoma brands, there's, there's other areas where I have better examples of things we got wrong. Crave is one of those stories where, by and large, we didn't make too many mistakes. We got very lucky. Now, I will, I will share a few with you, but we were, we were able to overcome them quite quickly. I think in any business, any entrepreneur in the food space or beverage understands that the relationship with their manufacturer is a critical component in building your business. And oftentimes an entrepreneur would rather try to leverage a co-manufacturing environment than build their own because it's totally capital inefficient to raise a ton of money, dilute down your ownership position in order to build your own facility when there's an independent firm that will do it for you. So there's a lot to unpack on that. But for me, our first co-manufacturer, within our first year, we had established um, a good relationship. They they, uh, commercialized our product for us. We brought it to life within our first year. we We were growing by leaps and bounds. And my first real big win, which was getting national distribution into Safeway, came my way. And that was the most meaningful. Every entrepreneur has their moment. That was my big moment. Safeway, national distribution. I put my PO into my co-man. And within a week of my submission of the PO, I received a FedEx letter back saying, we hereby formally are sharing with you that we will no longer manufacture for you. And in fact, what they did is decided to compete against me. So they saw enough of our success. My naivete was that I did not have a contract with that co-man. It was just a handshake. Like I thought, I'm, I'm from the wine, wine business, right? This is like, like old Italians, man. I mean, a handshake is, is as good as, as a contract. Like I would never screw anybody over if I shook their hand and looked them in the eye and said, we're doing business. So that's what happened. And so I had three months to figure out where the hell I was going to make all of my product now that I've got national distribution in Safeway. So by the good of God, I we, we now had a team by then. We were able to figure it out. But I, I would say that in Crave's journey, that was probably the biggest scare. I did have a second scare, uh, which which sounds worse than it was. Food obviously is governed either by the FDA or the USDA, and there are legitimate, you know, pathogens and and bacteria that can cause significant health risks to humans if the products aren't made properly. And meat is one of those areas that is highly regulated. Well, unbeknownst to us. One of our manufacturing runs, we had a uh, allotment of beef that 
was purchased from a grower that was selling cattle that had cancer, eye cancer. And so it's a longer story than what I'm alluding to now, but what it did trigger was a recall. And so recalls are real. Uh, many people have had to deal with them. But for a young brand, when you're growing and you're building your credibility and your relationships with your retailers are fragile because you're trying to earn your permanent placement, when you get a recall, I mean, all bets are off. And your reaction, how you deal with the customer, how you deal with the, the retailer, how you deal with public relations, all matter. And that was something that we had no culpability. It was not our fault. Yet we were the one that took the brunt of, of the, the damage. But obviously we navigated through it. Uh, but those are, those are two issues. Gosh, I don't think we've had a brand yet that had to navigate through a recall on this podcast. I mean, I can't even imagine. And also like having, again, like the rug kind of pulled under you with the manufacturer deciding to launch their own brand and you navigating and, and having three months of runway there of figuring out who the next manufacturer was. I'd imagine the next one was probably not a handshake agreement. So how did the sale come about to, uh, to Hershey? Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's kind of a weird thing. Um, I coming from the wine business was only familiar with how values work in the wine industry. And for those that are listening to this podcast, maybe maybe many of us are in the food business already, but the valuation metrics of the wine industry are very different than segments of food and non-alc beverage. And so to be honest with you, as I shared earlier, I mean, I started Crave because I it was more out of survival. It was more out of my pride of trying to figure out the best path forward to build my next chapter in my career. Like three years into building Crave, unbeknownst to me, suddenly I started receiving inbound interest from strategics. And this was after being wooed by private equity which I took particular interest in because it was even before I started Crave that I wanted to, to, to be in private equity. So mind you that, that and we'll, maybe we'll get to that in a little bit, but pre-Crave, I was like, I want to be an early stage investor. Had no idea how the heck I was going to get there. No idea. And some wise person told me, the only way your age you're going to get there, because I was too old, the only way is if you become an expert as an entrepreneur in an area that allows you to develop such a skill set and a toolbox and relationships that become uh, enough, that build enough credibility, a pattern recognition, a value add where you can raise capital. So point being is as I was building Crave, it was important for me to understand the ecosystem of the other investors that were in food through the lens of Crave. And I, and I was very blessed to have some of the best firms in our industry give me term sheets for Crave. But about three years in, the idea of what this business was worth shocked me to my core. And 
I just had no idea the level of value creation that could be had in, in the food space. Now, relative to the tech space, it's, it's nothing. But for me, this so over-delivered that suddenly, Mike, as an entrepreneur, if you don't, I believe in, in Churchill's statement of only the paranoid survive. I mean, it's a, being an entrepreneur is a little bit lonely because it requires 24-7 thinking. I mean, my mind is always, always on my business. I'm always trying to break the business model or break prop, you know, find a quality problem, or I'm reading every negative response from customers. I'm visiting stores. I mean, you're always hunting for the crack in the foundation. And as the values of Crave began to grow, and I received a first offer of $180 million, unsolicited. I mean, I wasn't for sale. I knew then it, it suddenly creates a new level of anxiety. Because when you have that amount of, of value on the table, it calls into question your own confidence about how confident are you that you're going to keep on growing? How many other new entrants are going to come in and copy what you're doing? What is, what is Jack Links or, or ConAgra with Slim Jim going to do? What happens if another recall happens? I mean, suddenly recalls mean something very different if it costs you $100 million of value. So we never really were for sale, but two things happened. One is after I received that unsolicited offer I mentioned, I was in Las Vegas and I was at a trade show and Hershey had come and asked to talk to me. And so when we, I didn't really know what it was about, but when they came, they started to introduce themselves and they very quickly made it clear that they had been tracking uh, Crave, that they had been more importantly tracking the category. And as I mentioned earlier, both things are happening. Category growing, double digit, Crave growing faster than any other brand in the category. And their, their president of North America was like, we want to buy you. They said, well, I'm not really for sale. They said, what's it going to take? I said, well, this is what it's going to take. And they went, done. And so all I can tell you is it's, I think about it a lot because as entrepreneurs, right, there, there is some sort of mindset that the sense of resiliency and grit makes us believe that we can do anything. Like anything's possible. I will not fail. I will never give up. That's like, I will just never, ever give up. And so as you sell, sometimes you second guess yourself and you're like, God, did I, did I sell too early? Did I cop out? Did I sell out? You know, but as the dust settled for me, yes, the number was amazing. Uh, $240 million. But more importantly, it was Hershey. I mean, what kid in America would not want to sell their business to Hershey? Uh, I mean, they're, they're amazing. And so for me, it was like the perfect marriage. And at that time, it was the perfect marriage. That's amazing. Since you were, as you say, like always on, and I think that any successful entrepreneur 
um, always a bit paranoid, right? About, about competition, about growth. How did you navigate and manage that with your mental health? Cause you know, at times you, you do need to switch off. Sometimes I was not very good at it. Let's put it that way. As I sit here with you today, Mike, it's, it's still a challenge to, to create balance and equilibrium. I, I have a hard time uh, prioritizing my personal life. I really do. My antidote for my physical health is, is I continue to run. Um, so I'm training once again for the New York City Marathon this year. Um, I try to run four or five events a year, not all marathons, but between half marathons or uh, triathlons. So the, the actual discipline of, of running an event, competing in an event requires me to focus on what I eat, uh, on how I sleep. And so that to some degree uh, keeps my brain healthy, but it's a dramatic challenge for me to manage, you know, my, my private life. I mean, I, I have a 13 year old daughter and I have a family and, and, but my, my work requires every minute uh, that, that I have available. And so I think that, that all of us together in this ecosystem can empathize with that reality. You know, I don't know if there's an easy solution. Some of us are better than it than others. I always think that my investors love this part of me because, you know, part of the chip on my shoulder comes from like me being a kid and being a part of an Italian family where my relationship with my father was not built on affection or approval. It was built on, I will pay attention to you if you work. You will receive my approval if you work. And so for me, how I'm wired is I build my own sense of self-worth around building companies. That's what makes me feel okay. And so it's a, that's a bit personal that I'm sharing with you, but, but in reality, that's part of my drive um, because that's what I know. And that dynamic creates it a little bit difficult to understand, well, when do I go for, you know, like reading a book or taking a walk or, or meditating? These are all things that are hard for me to, to do. Yeah. I mean, well, first of all, I really appreciate you opening up and saying that. I mean, you know, because people talk about having a chip on their shoulder and and I always kind of question or or wonder what that chip is or how deep that chip is. And for you, it seems like that chip is pretty, pretty deep in terms of what actually makes you tick. What inspired you? So after, of course, you you sell Crave to Hershey, um, you want to go into private equity. So you start Sonoma Brands. What was that process like starting Sonoma Brands? What were kind of your first steps? One of the many, uh, and I underscore many great things about this uh consumer ecosystem uh, are that there's a lot of people out there that want to help each other. I know there were a number of angels that arrived in my life along my Crave journey that for no benefit to themselves, they helped me. And when I sold Crave, uh, I had developed a relationship with, with another private equity person that I had not done business with yet. 
that became a, a very good personal friend. And, you know, when it came time to starting Sonoma Brands, you know, there's just a whole different vocabulary. There's a whole different go-to-market strategy. There's a different ecosystem in raising institutional capital. There's a behavioral component of making sure that you are set up the right way, that raising institutional capital is extraordinarily different than being an entrepreneur raising venture capital or private equity capital. So that's a long way to say that there were a few very instrumental folks in my life that I had grown to love along the way that helped me, uh, that knew that that was my passion, that knew that that was my, my goal, that invested alongside me, but more importantly, helped open up some doors for me uh, to begin designing my thesis and begin designing my strategy. And, you know, the Sonoma brand's uh, original hypothesis is that what I observed in building Crave is, is very simple. It's when I started Sonoma Brands, it was the realization that lar in large part through my experience at Crave that I would rather as an entrepreneur work with an investor that had been there, done that before, that they had the empathy to understand the fear, the questions, the hurdles, the opportunities of building a company. So having an entrepreneurial rooted private equity company was a new thing in the consumer space. And so, yes, I will provide capital, but the thesis is I'm going to provide more value to the entrepreneur than just capital because I've built and sold a company myself. I've done the sales call. I did, you know, when you asked me the, 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 the things that uh, set Crave back or the errors in judgment, I mean, I've lived through these things and that's going to set me apart from somebody that used to be an investment banker that's now just you know, investing capital. So I can't underscore enough, though, that this ecosystem is a very collaborative, supportive uh, group of people. And there were a few individuals that were instrumental in getting Sonoma Brands going with me. Was it harder to raise um, at Sonoma Brands? Was it harder to raise from uh, LPs, institutional investors, versus if you're an entrepreneur and you're trying to raise from venture capital? Resoundingly more difficult to raise institutional capital by 100x. So now that's not to say if you have a questionable product and a questionable brand that it's easy to raise VC or high net worth individual money. But I think, you know, private equity, venture capital, high net worth individuals that are uh, deploying capital into private investments, they're just much more apt to trust the thesis. They're going to believe in the founder. Institutional investors require many layers more of infrastructure and professionalism uh, and diligence. So uh, by leaps and bounds, more difficult. So with this thesis of, you know, you you have a platform at Sonoma Brands and that you're going to help the companies, um, obviously, you know, help entrepreneurs in whatever capacity that they need. You're not just kind of a passive check, so to speak. With all this being said, what are some of the particular 
verticals or um, or areas of focus that you have? We are constantly reevaluating and chasing alpha. So we definitely have expanded our mandate. Um, folks may view Sonoma Brands as more of a food investor, food beverage. We we definitely have expanded far beyond food and beverage. We're we're in pet now. Uh, we're in wellness. We have invested in a European digital pharmaceutical company. We've invested into a B2B2C digital platform that connects uh, veterinarians to their patient, patient pet owners, where when a prescription is written, it's entered into our platform and delivered same day, disrupting the old school nature of Chewy.com or, or 1-800-PET-VETS. Uh, we've greatly expanded into personal care. So we view our mandate as consumer. We are chasing value opportunities. We obviously are allergic to any category where we feel there's such a crowded nature of, of copycats, if you will, to where an exit opportunity doesn't exist. So I can use Crave as an example. Fortunately for me, I was by luck, let's just say 50% of my success is luck, maybe even more. I was the first one to do what I did in the jerky set. This, the success of the category became quite evident to the broader marketplace. You know, within three years, there were 25, 30 premium brands that had entered that space. As an investor, we are looking for those first movers in those categories, not the 20th mover, not even the third mover. Sometimes number three or number four can sneak in, but you know, by and large, it's a very competitive environment out there. Entrepreneurialism has never been more fashionable than it is right now. There's so much liquidity available in the marketplace that, you know. Truth be told, ideas that don't deserve to exist are getting funded and it's creating, you know, it's cluttering the marketplace. And if you've got a brand that you know will never you know, successfully exit occupying shelf space on a retailer's shelf only because they're willing to pay the money to put the, slot, the slotting dollars in, you know, as an investor, I'm going to avoid that category. So our mandate is chasing disruption. We feel that the premiumization of all things consumer will continue. Uh, but we see seams in the marketplace that just are more compelling to us at certain times than others. And right now, uh, we see a lot of excitement in personal care, a lot of excitement in pet and digital platforms that are connecting consumers to, to brands, um, which is, we're all evident, you know, uh, aware of through the pandemic, but, uh, you know, we are omni-channel investors. We believe very much in digital platforms. Um, how do you also think about product differentiation? Because it seems like also now you can, you know, contract manufacture out your product, um, you don't need to be vertically integrated. Can you build a very large business that is that makes sense for private equity and venture capital where there actually might not be 
that much IP or innovation on the product end. You're right. I mean, I think we we wrestle with that every deal we do. We want to identify the moat. What what protectable IP are we buying? Are we betting on? And oftentimes, uh, the IP that we're investing into is not recipe. It's not uh, manufacturing. Sometimes it is, but most of the time, uh, you're right. It's it's very easily replicated. Virtually every product can be reverse engineered through consultants to to identify the right you know path to to have it taste the same. There's so much manufacturing availability out there that there's very few products. Uh, I mean, maybe a beyond meat type business where, but we don't, I mean, that's a whole different conversation, right? When we step into the future of food and food tech and what's happening with, you know, the Bowery and beyond meat, I mean, where hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, if not billions are being invested into these platforms. My firm, we're not playing that game right now. That is protectable, investable IP. The type of IP that we are investing into is founder magic, first mover advantage, and brand. No, that makes sense. And it kind of goes back to your original point about how, and this is why storytelling is so critical. Because storytelling obviously is, is very much maybe the central element to brand. I was chatting with um, Ernesto Schmidt from The Craftery, and he was saying how he believes that digital brands, a lot of them, are heading into retail way too early. I would love your take on when do you think it's the right moment to head into retail if you are a digital brand. And I know since Walmart is being very aggressive and, ta- and Target's being very aggressive of having more and more shelf space for digital brands, are Overall, maybe on aggregate, do you think that digital brands are heading into retail too early? I mean, it's it's a question that I don't know if there's a wrong answer to. To be to be perfectly honest, I think it's it's the type of question where no one's right and no one's wrong. And and uh, I have examples that I can share with you that are that they went very early and they were very successful. I was uh, an investor in a phenomenal brand called Hue H U Hue Products. And I'm, you know, Jordan Brown and Jason Carp. when all they had was, was one store, their own little restaurant in New York City, and they sold their, you know, this isn't even, you talk about IP and, and a moat or, or, you know, protectable, you know, intellectual property. I mean, they just made a great chocolate bar that was paleo compliant out of a lifestyle change of Jason and Jordan. And they had enough customers in, in their store in New York. They're like, hey, I love your chocolate. Can I buy some to take home? And they're like, holy smokes, maybe we should try it out, selling it at the Columbus Circle Whole Foods. And before they know it, you know, you got 50 bars a day going through the register. So I would offer that example as a as a contrarian view to, to what you just shared, that, that they went they went very, very early. Uh, we were helping them design promotional uh, schedules before, you know, they even, they, I mean, they were just learning on the fly. But on the flip side, you're right. I think that our ecosystem, and we're seeing it uh, more and more uh, within the, the various press bulletins and so forth, that 
the strategic, I'm speaking about food or beverage for that matter. You know, the, the strategic community today, I think has, has seen an explosion of innovation and there's an explosion of brands and many of them are funded, whether they deserve to be or not is not for me to say, but I think that the buyer universe is looking at brands and they're asking themselves a few new questions that they, they weren't say three or four years ago. One is, are they truly transformational? And I think today's brands that exit to a strategic, they have to be transformational. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be plant-based transformational. It can be low sugar. I mean, Lily's chocolate that Hershey just bought is in part transformational to Hershey's portfolio. The second part is they have to have way better gross margins. So five years ago, and many, many, many businesses today, you know, they're not focused on gross margins. And there's still a psychology of grow at all costs. You know, that our success is defined by, you know, top line revenue and number of doors that we're in. Now there's the other caveat of all the digitally native brands that, you know, have built their success uh, based on metrics alone too. But I think it's margin and positive EBITDA and being truly transformational are the new three factors that, that brands have to think about. Another investor once said that part of his job is to figure out what's a fad and what's a trend. And I'm curious, is there um, maybe a particular, maybe something that um, other investors, maybe the market thinks is a trend that, for example, you think actually is a fad or, or vice versa? I think that's a, that's a question we get asked a lot. We get, we get asked that question by almost every investor in us. Uh, so you, you can imagine that, that everyone's, you know, petrified, uh, that their GP, me, uh, or other GPs are going to chase, uh, every single fad. And I think we've seen a lot of fads and my approach, our firm's approach is that we really, we will chase and we will pay we are not afraid to give a very strong value to a brand. Therefore, we feel that if with our willingness to do that, we're gonna go after the best brands in super big categories that are well-established in terms of their history of being big addressable markets. We just don't chase businesses that are, I'll, I'll pick on a, a product that's so old that nobody should be offended by it. But like, we're not going to go try to make a bet that the kale chip is going to be the next big thing. I mean, that's just not what we do. So you're right. There are little things, you know, from keto and keto is, I think, proven to be maybe more of a trend than, than just a fad. But I think it, it isn't as big as it was just a little time ago. And I think five years from now, it will be even less than it is today. Um, we invest in brand. And I think brand wins the day over, over it, uh, fads or trends. I guess going back to the beginning or when we're talking about Crave, 
why did you end up buying Crave back from Hershey? I, I thank you for asking. I mean, I, I'll, I'll answer it a couple different ways because obviously I never in a hundred years expected uh, this to be the case. And so first and foremost, and it may be blindingly obvious, but, but you know, when you start a brand, it's like a child. I mean, you love it. You, it, it becomes an extension of who you are. Crave has given more to my professional life than any other single thing in my life. And so, you know, I have a reservoir of gratitude for that brand. And furthermore, I also have um, a deep sense of respect and appreciation for Hershey. They're a big company, they're publicly traded, they're in the billions and billions of, of revenues. So some things work and some things don't work. And, you know, I wished that it had worked with them. Um, I really do. That was one of the reasons why I sold it to them is I wanted Crave to be in Hershey's portfolio and be a grand, grandfather and go to Hershey Park and, you know, see Crave there. But, you know, it just didn't, it didn't work for them. And there are reasons why. Hershey, out of respect for me, which is the honorable thing for a strategic to do, they realize when, when they buy a founder's company that you are buying part of them. This is a human business. And, you know, yes, there's transactions in this, but this, in our ecosystem, we give our soul to these brands. And so, you don't just cash the check and forget about it. I mean, it, it is, you know, you, you love it the same. And so when Hershey called me and said, look, um, we gave it a go where we have a pivot in our strategy, uh, but out of respect for you, John, we'd like to give you an opportunity to, to buy it back. It wasn't an immediate yes. Uh, it wasn't like, oh my God, 100% yes. I had to understand because I'm now an investor, right? So I had to treat this no differently than I would treat any other investment. What's the price? Uh, what's the condition of the marketplace? What do I have to do to fix it? Because the brand when I bought it was not the brand when I sold it. Two different brands now, same name, but their positioning in the marketplace was very different. The category is now crowded. It's a joke in many ways, how many different jerky brands uh, are out there. And there will be less. We, we believe from a categorical standpoint, there will be addition through subtraction. So my thesis was, I have an opportunity to bring Crave back into the fold, but I'm only doing it not for nostalgic reasons, not for emotional reasons, because I think I can fix it. I really do. I think we can turn it around. Crave is the premium brand in the business. We did spend a lot of money doing national consumer research through an independent firm, Qualtrics. And it came back to us through a several thousand um, individual study that Crave is still viewed as the number one premium brand in all of meat snacks. Secondly, I designed a broader thesis that I wanted to participate in the roll-up of this category. 
and that I was aware that there were other brands that maybe were not performing as well as they had hoped. So we bought Crave and under the assumption that we would add to it. And within three months of buying Crave, we then bought Chef's Cut uh, as well. So, you know, if you think about just three or four years ago, just three or four years ago, those two brands were doing uh, two, over $200 million of revenue. Today, they're not. They're, they're much less than that. But from an awareness standpoint, the consumer still has a favorable view for these brands. It just is a matter of us rebuilding the strategy, turning the companies around. What was the reason why Crave was maybe broken while Hershey had it? I think the first thing that happened um, is quality, quality suffered. And I, I think, you know, we can make this industry seem really complex. And as an entrepreneur, we can overanalyze a lot of different things. And certainly oftentimes it deserves that. But at the end of the day, your product's got to taste good. I mean, I just can't, there's so many businesses that we see, like you would, it would boggle your mind where the product just doesn't even taste good. And those are non-starters. So my point is, you know, Hershey, I think underestimated the difficulty of manufacturing meat. And they, we were dealing with a co-man environment right? And they then dealt with the same co-man environment. And while there were plans to vertically integrate it over time, too much time passed before they did that. And the deterioration of quality began to accelerate. And, you know, any big company that has to report quarterly earnings, you know, they're going to focus on the winners because they have to perform now. And so, unfortunately for the Crave brand, uh, I think the dominant reason what happened is that the brand was built on a very, very moist, flavor, flavorful product that was innovative. And the innovation was stalled and the quality began to deteriorate. And customers then, because so much competition had come in, had many, many other options. And they abandoned the brand. Would you invest in a company that is in multiple categories? We've had a couple of companies um, on the show that they had a really hard time fundraising from the very beginning because a lot of VC funds um, looked at the company and said, you know, strategics aren't going to go for that because it's in multi-category. How do you think about single category versus multi-category companies? Yeah, I would not invest in that. So that well, I think that uh, we have to, I mean, there's a lot that goes into the diligence of what we define as a Sonoma brand deal. Mm. So if you're cross pollinating like entirely different categories, I'm not talking about ice cream versus cookies versus baking. Those are different categories. And that's what we would invest into brand that has permission to be in multiple locations in a store. But there's no way that, that we're going to invest into a brand that's got cough syrup and, uh, you know, dried fruit 
uh, under the, the same brand. Because the reason why is we, we always think about who a potential buyer of this brand is going to be. And buyers just aren't going to do that. In fact, maybe a different question that you, you or a same question asked a different way, uh, which we actually think more about is channel conflict. And so what, what we are really studying, and we think the entrepreneurial community is a bit ahead of, of strategics right now, in that my, my vision of an ideal brand is a three-legged stool. And it comes back to what we've been talking about, which is content and authenticity and customer relations. And if you have a brand that has both brick and mortar, maybe not a lot, but some form of brick and mortar and digital and traditional CPG, you have an opportunity to control in a very measurable way your customer experience. You have profitable ways of driving innovation through your brick and mortar. You get to tell your story. You get to engage in, in, in immediate customer feedback. Uh, digitally, you're, you're able to retain your customers in a way and see their behavior and understand, all the while feeding all of that data into your retail partners. And as great as that sounds, that causes an allergic reaction to many strategics. They don't have the infrastructure to either manage the digital part or manage the brick and mortar part. So it can get a little bit complex uh, in terms of what we invest behind, what our overall thesis is, because part of it is it has to fit into an exit horizon with a particular buyer that we think will buy it. What is one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? I think uh, professionally, uh, a book called Different uh, by Young Me Moon is, is a very, uh, it's just a, it, it, it's a phenomenal book. It, it, it echoes a lot of, of what I shared today. It's just how I'm wired. I like to, when everyone's going this way, I want to go that way. And personally would be the four agreements. I know a little bit of a standard, but I, you know, it, it just carries with me. No, I love that. Um, I love the four agreements. Uh, big fan and different. That's the first time we've uh, heard it on the show. So uh, you're very original. No one's else uh, mentioned that book. So really excited to add it to our list. Um, my final question to you is what's the best piece of advice that you've received? Oh, it's a good one. I should have it ready for you. Um, so I'm going to shoot from the hip here. Um, and it's stay humble, stay hungry. I love that. Well, John, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with John. I really appreciate him taking the time. I hope you all enjoyed listening as much as I did chatting with him. Now let's hear from Rohan from Gorgeous. Rohan, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm doing very well, Mike. How about yourself? I'm doing fantastic. I would love to learn a bit more about your company, Gorgeous. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, Gorgeous is an e-commerce focused help desk. We are an omni-channel solution. We aggregate a bunch of different channels that brands utilize to communicate with their customers. Uh, things like email, chat, phone, SMS, social media, 
um, any way really to get in touch with potential customers or customers that are looking to buy from your brand. What we do at Gorgeous is we build in a lot of automation and machine learning into the back end of the product. A lot of times what customers are asking to brands is, Where's my order? What's my shipping status? Things that are very common and very repetitive. Uh, and what we do at Gorgeous is we help brands automate certain things so that they don't have to spend a lot of time focusing on those common and repetitive requests, but that they can actually spend a lot of time focusing on things that are much more complex in order to drive revenue uh, out of the CX function. So what we do is we actually integrate with uh, three platforms, Shopify, Magento2, and Big Commerce. And what we can do with those platforms is we can actually bring in variables um, from each of the three, things like order number, name, shipping information, tracking information, things that are easily accessible without ever having to leave the Gorgeous platform. And that makes things so much easier for the agents on the brand side of things to get back in touch with customers and make sure that they're helping them in the most efficient way possible. And I always like to talk about uh, social media as well. We have ad comments from Facebook and Instagram. We have Messenger. And we also have Instagram DMs, which is one of our most widely requested features uh, all across our customer base that we can actually bring into the gorgeous platform and help brands communicate with customers and prospective customers, uh, you know, perhaps before they ever hit their website. And so we're very e-commerce focused. We have about 7,000 brands all across the spectrum from early stage east, uh, from early stage e-commerce to much later stage mature companies as well. And we're also very international. That's awesome. So you're able to, with Gorgeous, to uh, brands can consolidate all requests that they get from customers, all the customers' tickets, asking where their orders are in one location. Sounds like it's going to save a lot of time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like gone are the days where brands are just using email to communicate with with their customers, right? They're using email, they're using social media, SMS is something that brands are really utilizing, especially over the last year or so. There's so many different ways to get in front of customers. CX is much more of a proactive activity now than it ever has been, as opposed to just purely reactive. And at Gorgeous, we help brands make things more efficient from from an aggregation and automation perspective. So you have over 7,000 customers, which is amazing, 7,000 brands. From your perspective, when does it make sense for a brand to be thinking about partnering with Gorgeous or be using Gorgeous? It's a good question. Really, our baseline set of requirements is that, you know, they sit on Shopify or, or BigCommerce or Magento too. And that with the integrations that we have with those three platforms, that immediately makes any brand that's uh, looking to consolidate tickets uh, qualified customer for us, right? And so we have customers that are doing, you know, say 300 to 350 tickets a month, and maybe they're just using a couple different channels like just email and, and phone, for example. And then we have much more mature brands on the enterprise level that are accepting tens of thousands of tickets uh, and have multiple, multiple agents on the brand side working to get back to customers. And one of the things that we do differently at Gorgeous is we actually don't price based on the number of heads that you have using Gorgeous on the brand side. So we're not going to charge you for each additional user that you have on the platform. We're actually just going to charge based on ticket volume. And, and that's how we determine where on the spectrum you are. And for that reason, it generally, in combination with all the automation we build in, it tends to be very cost effective for brands. And not only are they saving potentially on that side of things, but they're also able to generate sales through the automation and machine learning that we have built in. And it gives a bunch of people access to the platform. So if someone on the engineering team wants to hop in or the CEO wants to hop in, they can do so. And it's not going to cost the brand anymore. That's awesome. That's awesome. As we're approaching the holidays here, what are three tips for managing the customer experience that you have for the brand? Since obviously in retail, the holiday period is the busiest time. 
Number one um, is personalize all your interactions with customers. The worst thing that you can do as a brand is make your customers feel like they're just a number, not an actual person. And in the event where you're not getting back to customers in a sufficient amount of time or you're not getting them the right answer or you're not addressing them by name, it's very likely that a combination of these things or even one of these things is going to convince that customer to go to a different brand. I mean, there's so much competition out there nowadays that consumers are willing to pay a couple extra bucks just for that more personal interaction with the brand. And so make sure you're personalizing that interaction with your customers and making them feel like you want to have a relationship with them long term. Number two is automate frequently asked questions. Uh, I talked a little bit about this earlier, but one of the most common requests we see, uh, especially in the DTC environment with brands is, you know, where's my order? What's my shipping? status? When is it going to get here? Questions that you and I have both asked in the past as well. And we're finding that agents are spending way too much time manually responding to these kinds of requests. And it's not allowing them to focus on really getting in front of prospective new customers um, via a number of other different channels. And so what we can do with the integrations is we can bring in the variables like name, order information, tracking information. Um, and we could set rules in the background to automatically respond to customers if they were to, for example, ask about shipping or, or status of their order. And that's just one example. But there are a number of other ways that the brands can use automation. The important thing there, obviously, is to not overuse automation. There, There's only so much that you can do with, with that piece of the equation. And if you do overuse it, then that takes away from point number one, which is personalization. And number three, find opportunities to drive revenue through, through customer support. Customer support, as I mentioned earlier, is no longer just a, a reactive piece of the organization. It's much more proactive nowadays. So institute live chat campaigns. Hop on a page in front of a customer, uh, basically inducing them to make a purchase by telling them something that they want to hear or helping them out in, in making a decision in terms of product in your website. Utilize social media. If somebody comes in and comments on one of your ads and says they love this product that you posted, respond to them directly in line from within Gorgeous and provide them with a discount code to induce them to come to your website. Institute SMS campaigns. SMS is, is being widely adopted across the industry now, especially over the last year or so. And if you have a new product launch, announce it via SMS. People are on their phones all the time. And chances are they're at least going to click through that link to get to your website and take a look at what you have to offer, especially if they've been customers of yours in the past. And, and if they haven't, then it's a chance to, to gain new customers. So be proactive, not reactive is point number three. And you know, if you combine those three things, I think you're going to have a successful BFCM. No, I love that. I love that. So in just to recap, number one, personalize all interaction with customers. We, we talk a lot about on the show about the trend of uh, personalizing products. Well, also personalize those interactions with customers as well when they do have maybe uh, some pain points. If it goes so far. In your second point, automate frequency or, or have an FAQ sheet um, absolutely makes total sense. And the third point I love, which is turning your customer experience or your customer service center from a cost center into a revenue driver. And I think that is pretty amazing um, idea and also really cool because then you get, then you can also influence a repeat rate. And at the same time, if you don't have a great customer service center, if that's not fully baked out and you maybe aren't personalized with customers, then they might churn and you might lose them to a competitor. So that's awesome, Rohan. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, absolutely. I appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone. 